This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. On this episode, we found ourselves a professor. Not just a professor, a doctor. A man who is at the forefront of change for Rugby Union for the Better. It's the powerful, the wonderful Professor Bill Ribbons. Is wearing his heels, marching around the town to get some thrills. But it's time to go in now, and he's big and red. A shot of black coffee, now he's super bad. He gets loud. I'm a bearded gauze. I showed him off some whiskey, and he shoots like a mouse. So, Doctor Professor. Bill Ribbons, great to chat again. Last time we spoke was Christmas of 2020 when I went back through the archives. Life was very different then. Can you just give us a snapshot on who you are? I know who you are, but for the millions of listeners, and then we can get into what's going to be a fantastic discussion. Well, the first thing, Jim, thank you. Thank you for asking me back. I'm glad I didn't block my copybook in December 2020. I'm an orthopedic surgeon primarily based in Northampton, which is, you know, is a sports mad town. I'm also the professor of sports medicine at the University of Northampton, where I was this morning. I've spent over 40 years since 1980 working in elite sport. It was always my passion. My dad was a sports journalist. And I've been lucky enough that my career took me back into sport as a surgeon and as a sports doctor. Yeah, absolutely. You've underplayed yourself slightly there as well, because of the history and the background, something that we researched a couple of years ago. But it's fair to say you've worked with some of the biggest names, not just in rugby, but in the world. Do you want me to name drop them or do you, do you want to name drop them? Michael Schumacher being one. Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky enough to look after world champions, I think, across eight different sports and about 27 Olympic medalists, as you say. Michael Schumacher, Jess Ennis, Christina Rugu, uh, lots of the rugby players, and I've been lucky enough to be involved at the international level with various teams, cricket, rugby, over the years. And, of course, ballet, which I've been involved with for the last 40 years, and I regard them as uh, as uh, just as much athletes as the rest of them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first line, if I did an interview, would be, 
that. I'll just go straight into it. I've worked with these people. I've done this, but humbly playing it down. You mentioned ballet, people in ballet. It's the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh at the minute. I don't know if you've ever been, but they're doing these Cirque du Soleil things in like literally just like these big tents on the meadows. And the athleticism, you know, when people speak about athletes, you, you think straight away, you think sport, don't you? You think yeah. everything sport. I'm watching these, and I've got a couple of physios that I work with at Scotland that are now working at the Cirque du Soleil. I have never in my life seen athleticism like it that close up. It's very impressive. I mean, the Edinburgh Festival is wonderful. I was lucky enough a couple of years ago, one of my daughters was appearing in it. But uh, many of the gymnasts and, and the dancers do go on to that kind of career afterwards. And if you look at the the dancers in particular, the ballerinas, when you think of measurements of fitness like their VO2 max, which we look at as aerobic fitness, they're not much more than most normal people. But the, the repetition of their training, their stability, balance is just phenomenal. Mm. And these are the conversations I'm having my wife when we talk about rugby and the kids coming through. And this is something we're going to delve into, something that we've spoken about before, mm. the momentum's gathered, and people are questioning now, do I put my boy or girl into ballet or do I put them in to rugby? And it's a fair question. It really is. Dr. Bill. Do you want me to call you Dr. Bill, Professor Bill, or just Bill? Bill. Bill. Brilliant. You're working with a community, a company. I, I don't know how to describe progressive rugby, but that's exactly what they are. They are progressing rugby, especially online and getting the message out there around concussion. You're a part of that. Can you just let the listeners know what that is? I mean... People might have seen it on Twitter. It's divided opinion across a few different people. They've got quite big voices on social media, and rightly so. But can you just give us a snapshot of what that is? I've said it, called it a community. What do you call yourselves? I think that's a, that's a really good way of putting it, actually, Jim. So when I published my book in November 2020... Knife I, in the Fast Lane. Knife in the Fast Lane, available in all good bookshops, I wanted to put a, a chapter in on head injuries in sport. And... Obviously, I didn't know at the time, but within weeks, um, Steve Thompson and Alex Popham and a group of others came forward. Steve Thompson, we attended the same school, obviously a few years apart. I remember Steve as a as a teenager, and I looked after him as one of the Northampton Saints doctors. So I, I felt, as you can imagine, absolutely bewildered by what had happened. Simultaneously, because of what I'd written, various people had read it. And so in early 2021, I was approached by Progressive Rugby. There was a group of people putting themselves together who had similar concerns over the issue of concussion and welfare in rugby union. So the group is a, it's a mixture. Um, we've got orthopaedic surgeons, sports doctors, we've got neurosurgeons, very good experienced GPs, ex-players, coaches, referees, headmasters, headmistresses, all involved. We want to be absolutely separate from the, the legal case. We just want to progress the welfare of players. We're all absolute rugby nuts and we just want it to survive in a safe form for another century or so. Yeah, absolutely. And the people involved, like you said, are across all different fields in terms of knowledge, historic knowledge. You mentioned ex-players yep. and people who want to obviously have a big voice out there for what is a quickly changing landscape of 
not just rugby union, but rugby across the board, really. I mean, I initially had a conversation after our podcast two years ago, and I went back and listened to our podcast, which was December 2020. I think it was the 15th, just before Christmas. And I'd not listened to it back because it was quite emotionally charged, not our conversation, but the lead-up to that because it was the week that Alex Popham announced that he had early-onset dementia. I put out an insensitive tweet saying, we signed up. That got huge kind of, I say huge backlash. You can look at backlash on social media and it could be three messages out of 100 and you feel the weight of that. Ever since then, I haven't been questioning that, but I think it's important that if you make a statement like that, like we signed up, that I need to be able to back that up with information, but also having played the game, being a dad, wondering whether or not rugby is the right sport for my children to be a part of. And now we're seeing the momentum gather. So I spoke to the guys at Progressive Rugby just to kind of get a lay of the land. And I think there can be some parts or some people that are listening to this it's the old saying, rugby's gone soft or the people at Progressive Rugby don't want the game to exist. And I think it's a really important point that you made and listening back to some of the podcasts that you've done before, that absolutely isn't the case. This is about accelerating concussion protocols, bringing to the fore the risks of playing too many games of rugby, repeated head trauma, and doing it in a way in which you're not filtered, similar to how I'm not filtered and I can have an opinion. Over the last two years, since we last spoke, a year and a half, December 2020, I feel there's been a big shift. I feel that you guys, being that independent voice, has almost forced the arm, whether or not that's through fault or design, of not necessarily governing bodies. I don't know that. But in terms of the social awareness, and I say that online, so from a Twitter standpoint, from an interaction with the online community, like I do, I make an opinion on a tackle at the weekend. Progressive Rugby will make an opinion on that. And as we know, the algorithms, Bill, I don't know if you know, the minute something becomes quite divisive, the algorithms then shoot up and there's more eyes on it. So for good or for bad, for better or for worse. Over the last two years since we last spoke, I keep saying two years, 18 months since we last spoke, from my standing, it feels like there's been a big shift in terms of the momentum you and your team are gathering. Am I right in saying that? Oh, I think undoubtedly. And just to go kind of back to your point in the end of 2020, we signed up for it. Well, what we now need is informed consent. The players and everybody involved in the game needs it. They need as much information as possible. And I'm fully aware and you know, I've been lucky enough to talk to World Rugby and the chief exec of the RFU and World Rugby various meetings as you know that we're now not talking i wasn't aware yes the, they made it public last week i, oh, think. I read the, the article yes from from alan gilpin um, he, he emailed me in july to say that he didn't feel it was appropriate any context because i like alan gilpin from what yes. i've seen before but this is important i think it's important that people well, know i, I think I, I think alan gilpin as he said in his statement was aware that Alex Popham was a member of Progressive Rugby. As Alex is part of the legal proceedings, felt that now that things had progressed, that they were not able to speak to us. And I, I wrote back and, to him and said, I, I fully understand that. And I'm grateful for the dialogue that we've had today. And I'm still hopeful that that may be resurrected at, at some stage. It was, as I said at the beginning, Progressive Rugby do not want to get 
involved in the actual legal proceedings. But Alex was a, a member of Progressive Rugby at the beginning. We want to support Alex. He's got a very important perspective on all of this. And I think for us to have jettisoned Alex from that group would have been, to me, uncaring. I think with the part where Alan Gilpin, and I'm not speaking for him at all, I'd love to speak to Alan, interviewed him in Singapore at an event a few years ago. And obviously, where they are as a governing body, they've got a lot of stuff to get through. And this needs to be front of the queue. He knows that, I think, from reading that article. But there's so much more we can do. And I'm definitely desperate to get onto that and talk to you about that. I think one of the things for me, Bill, reading that story about Siobhan Cadigan in the Sunday Times that David Walsh published was tragic, was harrowing. And looking at that and reading that, and I know that it's one side of the story, but you can't do with anything else but take notice and read that and wonder what is going on. I think it was about May. About five of us spent 90 minutes on a Teams with Siobhan's parents Mm. going through the whole episodes it was some of the most difficult 90 minutes I've ever had to sit through listening to their testimony so we were aware of Siobhan's plight before David Walsh published it in the Sunday Times clearly David Walsh considers it an enormously important story as Sunday Times followed up with two more stories this this week didn't they and I know David very well yeah. as well. We've had conversations before yeah. and it was a big, big article. Yeah, I understand that he thinks it's one of the most important articles he's ever written. Mm. And that comes from somebody who was responsible for outing Lance Armstrong and things like that. We know Siobhan's family's side of it, which was heartbreaking. We need to understand and the, the SIU need to come come to the table, not necessarily in in the open, but certainly with the family. And I think everything needs needs airing. Yeah, with Siobhan's story, which, again, is incredibly tragic. I read the article mm. and, you know, I had to stop, had to breathe, mm. you know, and I didn't know her personally. I know some of the teammates that she, she played with. And I think that's the thing, because when something is so emotionally led, sometimes it's difficult to speak about it or to have an opinion or to question it and I think you're 100% right you know the Scotland Rugby Union and I've worked with James Robson for many years who Mm. is fantastic fantastic. you know in terms of any doctor that I've worked with I would put him as number one and it's a tragic situation that you know hopefully we're going to hear more and more in terms of what's going to happen you know if there's going to be an independent review and you see I'm kind of stuttering and stammering because I'm completely unqualified to look at it is completely emotionally charged and, and, and emotionally led but back to my point I think seeing progressive rugby on top of that and obviously David Walsh's article and I'm mates with David Walsh I write a, a column for the for the times as well is I think that that's where not any pushback that you get as an organization but the question marks would be because I think people want to see the facts they want to see progression they want to see change and I think the minute you get caught up in this emotional, heightened scenario, that's where people start burying their heads because they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. You know, there was a part of me, I'm an, I've got an ambassadorial deal with Scotland Rugby. And there was a part of me like, do I turn up again and do that? 
there was a part of me that writes an article for the Times. I'm like, well, how balanced was that article? Do I write for the Times again? You know, I think we're still at a stage where we're watching things unfold in tragic ways. And we've seen Ryan Jones obviously recently come out and whether or not we like it or not, this is kind of the way that the NFL went, as you know, as we know. Mm. It started off slowly, gathered momentum. The stories got harsher and harsher. Only a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to my mate who's involved in the lit litigation and he's on the streets, you know, and he's quite a high-profile player and he's gone through some horrible things through what he says is to do with brain injury. So it's in a very emotive topic. If we can just move on to talk about some of the the facts, some of the things that we know now from a, a doctor's standpoint, from a neurological standpoint, and this we definitely didn't know, we didn't have access to as players, is around what is CTE? How does that look in terms of diagnosis? So when, you know, I'm nearly 40, you know, I'm second-guessing myself, but clearly Ryan Jones, Alex Popham, Steve Thompson, if we use them three, how do they become diagnosed? Like, how does that kind of start and, and what's the process they go through to get a diagnosis? And, sorry, before you answer that, is CTE and onset, early onset dementia, are they kind of combined? Are they separate things? The first thing to say is that CTE is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Many of your listeners will be more familiar, perhaps, with the term punch drunk syndrome. You see it in boxers. Yeah, in boxers. So that was where it was first described in 1928. Up until 2009, I think there'd only been 52 cases of CTE in the published literature. Across what sports? All One, sports. All sports. Yeah. So in the last 13 years, there's been hundreds and hundreds of cases come forward. The problem is with CTE is that you can only actually diagnose it on post-mortem. The deceased brain has to be specially looked at. It has to undergo a special examination. There's something called the tau protein, which is specific to it. And also the location of where the damage is in the brain. So it is not exactly the same as some of the other dementias that we see in the general public. And the more, as I understand it, the pathologists are learning about it, the neurologists are learning about it, the more they see it as a very separate entity. So CTE, you can't scan someone alive, put them into a scanner and see if they have or diagnose them with CTE while they're alive. You can see changes to the brain. You can see shrinkage of the brain, etc. But the only absolute diagnosis is to be able to examine the brain tissue, to undergo special stains, remember from our biology lessons, and to actually see these specific changes that are now characteristic of CTE. Mm. And then early onset dementia, and something that I've spoken about publicly, I have a history of that in my family. My grandfather, my nan, both passed away with that. And there's obviously, you all know better than me, there's a genetic element to that as well. And I think now it's becoming apparent that there's an obvious part to head trauma and potentially accelerating that or not even accelerating it, giving you that without having that genetically. Is that, how well, does that look? If we, if we accept that CTE is, it has some similarities, but is a different entity to the other neurodegenerative diseases that unfortunately are very common in our general population. We're also beginning to understand that there may be some genetic predisposition as well. And in fact, this morning I was at the university with one of my brilliant genetic colleagues and we've just been discussing 
trying to launch uh, some research into looking at teenagers and looking at susceptibility, which I feel very strongly about. Well, I heard you talking about, about that. And yeah. in terms of a podcast before, whether or not as a young man or woman, but as a young person, if you take head trauma, whether or not that has a lasting effect going into if you become an elite yes. professional. I feel that if we can protect our youngsters up until the point where their brain becomes mature in, in their late very late teens, other people may th have a different view on that, then I think hopefully we've got a better chance that they'll go through their senior rugby career a little bit better protected. Clearly the immature brain is at risk and, and that is where I feel that we need to put a lot of resources. Mm, absolutely. So in terms of diagnosis, when these players go in, how is that process? Who do they speak to? They initially speak to the doctor, say that I'm having these certain symptoms can you just go through some of the symptoms and the process of having symptoms all the way up to being diagnosed there's a whole constellation of symptoms that may lead to cte and that may be just a general fogginess it may be headaches forgetfulness just early signs that your cognitive ability your ability to do mathematics, you know, kind of simple sums on the shopping. All of those things may happen. Some people may progress to epileptic fits. So that's one of the problems, as far as I understand it, from my neurological colleagues, is that there's not one set of symptoms like so many diseases mm. that could fit with so many other things. And this is why there's often a delay in diagnosis. And then the neurologists need to put the patient through a series of cognitive tests, you know, looking at the function of the brain and in combination with scanning of the brain mm. to look for early changes, as we mentioned, like shrinkage. As far as I know, the neurologist can give a view that this is the most probable cause of their symptoms, but the only diagnosis comes after death. So with the tests that they go through, and again, I ask this because I'm second guessing myself mm. now, you know, I'm nearly 40. I speak about the history that I've had in my family, but I'm also speaking to mates that are worried shitless, that they're scared, you know, they're scared now because you're at an age of your life where you come out of rugby transition and it's difficult. It's tough. You suffer with anxiety, purpose, all these things that people speak about. You know, the euphoria, you don't have that euphoria that you had before. Your diet changes significantly. Your exercise changes significantly. Everything changes. And you put all these things into the mix and you start thinking that you are a different person. You are. And then now the momentum's gathered, obviously, with the information that we know. Ryan Jones, yet another player that's come out. I found out three of my other players, uh, three other players that I've played with, friends of mine that are going through tests. You start second-guessing yourself. As you say, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, that post-retirement phase is incredibly difficult for, particularly for professional sports people, all sports. You know, cricket has the highest suicide rate post-retirement of all sports. And then as you go on, you know, my age here I am in my late 60s, you know, the natural change is that getting a bit more forgetful about things. You just think, is that a sign? I, th I think what's different about, about this, you know, obviously football came to the fore. You know, if you take the starting 11 for England in July 1966, you know, Bobby Moore died early from cancer, so you've got 10 left. I think at least five of them have developed dementia. But th th that seems to be 
in the 60s and the 70s. I mean, obviously, what with the tragedies we're seeing now in rugby union are the players coming forward in their 40s. Mm. And the, th- the things I have to speak, frankly, <clears throat> because I'm keen to understand around this, like how, you know, if I'm feeling a little bit off or which I have been since I've retired, I don't feel how I felt when I was younger and I go through the process of where I am now to having mild headaches, to feeling a bit under the weather, to feeling, you know, slightly depressed at certain times. I'm not saying, I'm I'm speaking for my friends and stuff that I've speak to. Could it be easy to point it and say that is because I played rugby for so many years and I've taken collisions to the head? All I'm trying to ask here, Bill, is you break your leg, okay? And again, the brain the brain is very different to your leg, but it's easy then. I broke my leg, or I think I've broke my leg. You go for an X-ray, the bone's in half. You've broken your leg. With this, I'm just trying to get some clarity on how definitive we can be, because people will be listening to this thinking you'll go and get a brain scan you've got CTE. And I thought there was maybe a more simplistic way of diagnosing it, but, but it seems to be a lot more difficult. It seems to be, it's almost, well you alleviate all the other factors and we think it could be this. And then off the back of that, it's a big claim to be like, right, I think you've got this, not definitively known this because we can't scan it. Therefore, I'm going to take further action and sue World Rugby or the RFU or the SRU. What you're asking is it's, people need advice. And one of the frustrations I've had, and this is not only in my work in sport, but also having been an NHS consultant, is I've always felt concussion is a bit of a Cinderella area in medicine in this country. It seems to fall between so many specialties. I mean, for instance, I spent over 20 years as an orthopaedic surgeon. I was always on call on Mondays, so I spent 24 hours a week responsible for the assessment and the admission of head injuries. That was the drunk who'd fallen over at night. It was somebody who'd been in a car accident. It was somebody who'd taken a knock on the head playing rugby. So I was used to that bit. The neurosurgeons, you might think, well, they're going to be the people who know. But in fact, even in the hospitals where I worked at, where we had neurosurgeons, they weren't interested in the rugby player coming in with a bang on the head. They were interested if they needed a, a hole in their skull, and the bad ones. The neurologists, most neurologists, NHS clinics are absolutely full of people, you know, with migraines, with brain tumours, with multiple sclerosis. The expertise is not widespread. And this is what we want World Rugby, the RFU, the SRU, the WRU, we want them to provide very clear pathways for somebody who might be in your position, having retired. I've got this group of symptoms and I'm really not sure what it is. Is it purely psychological? Is it just purely post-retirement, ageing, or could it be the start of CTE? And we really feel that that pathway needs to be clear. And not just to the elites, you know, I think, you know, people who've, you know, spent... 20, 30 years out on the rugby field playing for the old Rottinghamians. Mm. But, of course, then how do you tie up the funding, which I feel ought to come from sports where there is a high concussion rate? How do they put that into the proper place? Do they put it into a private clinic? Do they fund an NHS unit? We've got very good units in Birmingham. We've got tremendous units at University College in London. We need to have wider expertise because, you know, the the poor player turning up, if they can get a GP appointment, you know, a GP is not trained in recognition of these things. They they may take a very medical protective view, don't play. It's very difficult. We need to have very clear pathways. Yeah, absolutely. Something interesting that you mentioned was sports medicine as a whole. 
I think, did you mention the Liverpool when they won, was it the Champions League, that they had no... No physio. No physio. Yeah. I was going to say no doctor. They had no physio back then. And that was, what, 40? That was in the 1970s, yeah. Yeah. So not that long ago, really. So Liverpool did not have a qualified physiotherapist throughout their early European title-winning years. It was all ex-players. They'd been on weekend courses. Mm. In fact, tiny Northampton Town did have a qualified physiotherapist before Liverpool did. But rugby, and again, something that I've heard you speak about, and when you look at other sports professionally, rugby's been professional since 95, 1995, 1996. And one of the big discussions and something that Alex and me probably not disagree on, but don't know enough about, we're trying to find out, and I say that because Alex has sent me a couple of messages with, with certain articles and stuff, is what we know now is not what we knew then. And that's the big thing for me is when I played and saw my first professional contract in 2001, like I don't even think ever the word concussion was ever banded about, you know? And I think the big thing and the big conversation where people were like, well, you knew knew what you were getting yourself into. You knew what you signed up for. Do you as progressive rugby feel that that is the case? Or do you think that somewhere, and I'm going to say it, do you feel there's been a cover-up because of information to not give players and unions to a degree, but mainly players, clubs, doctors, physios, the people that are on the ground in the trenches, access to information which might have been used differently to what it ever was? Well, I think you're tying it up inevitably with the whole development of the professional era. I think, and this is not just rugby, the welfare side of it has always come at the bottom on the balance sheet of the finances. I looked after Northampton Saints from just before I went professional to the early 2010s. I paid for my season ticket to get in the into the ground and I was pitch side with them, but I still had to pay to get in the ground. That is where, where elite sports teams often put the importance of the, of the medical staff. But there was, there was some, Jim, if we just talk about injuries in general, up in Scotland... A chap called McLeod is one of the Leeds early sports surgeons, doctors. They did a nice study on Scottish rugby two seasons before the game went professional and two seasons after. And they looked at the players and there was a doubling of the injuries in that early, early period. So you could see already just even two years down the line, the impact it was having. And as I kind of say, I always think rugby had the, potential to be a dangerous game but in the amateur it was saved by the fact that we'd all got to go to work on a Monday uh, it kept us out of the gyms the moment it went professional in 95-96 it changed because you could all be in the gym you could all be training full time and I think World Rugby and the unions have been playing catch up since so you don't think there was information out there well there wasn't the, 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 in terms of head trauma because this is the big one I know you yes. probably don't you probably don't want to go there because you don't want to be involved in the stuff that's happening with world rugby and, and the players taking action against the the respective unions but that's the big question isn't it that's the big question of the players from my generation is like did someone not tell us something whereas now they sign a box now if you become a professional rugby player you sign a box saying I'm taking full acknowledgement that the likelihood is is I could get an injury, I could get a brain injury. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. That information 
really only came through when the RFU began its its injury orders. And that's only really been going for 20 years. So if, if you're going to get a, a real view of head injuries and concussion, you can't just take it from Saracens, Leicester, Northampton Saints. You, you, you've got to see the, the entirety for it to begin to make to make sense. But what, what we were absolutely sure about, as you're aware, is that if a player did have a concussion as far as it, and it came to our attention, it was three weeks. Mm-hmm. And what, what year was this? What year was it that introduced? Yeah. 1977. 1977. Yeah, got it here with me. I, I, I'll show you minutes of meetings of the medical panel of the International Rugby Board in 1990, confirming that and, and they were being advised by neurosurgeons about the dangers of traumatic brain injury at that time and they had a, a nice meeting in Bermuda the minutes I've got and they confirmed again their concern and the absolute need for there to be three weeks uh, well that's a cover-up then is it not I know it's a, it's a big word we're not in the movies here or Hollywood or whatever like this is well, I, I mean that's well, the first time I've heard of that so no one told me if i took a a collision i got knocked out spoke about it on the podcast that you came on i'm out for 20 seconds i carried on playing and then went into the season like nothing had happened it it, it was three weeks i remember being lucky enough to be the england team doctor on on the day that johnny wilkinson made his um debut and and two irish lads clashed heads and knocked themselves both out obviously there's only one irish team doctor so i needed to run out there as well i remember Dawson and Grayson were the halfbacks and said, what the hell are you doing in the middle of the pitch, Bill? <laughs> I said, I think I'm looking after you. <laughs> so so that, these two Irish players? Spark out on the green sward at Twickenham. So three weeks off for a well, well, I looked after one and uh, the Irish team doctor looked after the other one. I got him straight back in the changing room and I knew that London Irish were playing um, Northampton the next Saturday at the Gardens. And I said, you're out for three weeks. I don't want to see you at the gardens next week because I'll be there. And that's what it was supposed to be. And you have to remember that Bill Bowman retired, I think, at the age of 29 with concussion. I, I mean, that that's the thing. Bill Beaumont, who is one of the head honchos at World Rugby, retired at the age of 29. Because of concussion. Because of concussion. And I, I read that and I was like, well, how many years ago was that, Big Bill? A long time ago. <laughs> Do you, do you know what I mean? So I think this isn't me trying to open you up. This isn't me trying to open anyone up. This is me trying to get to the point, which is the big thing around the emotion, around what it is, because it's so different now, Bill. I'm chatting to mates who coach about the next generation of players coming through. If in doubt, sit them out. Obviously, Pete Robinson and the loss of his son, Ben, which is extremely tragic, but has delivered such good things around younger schools and clubs and has made such headway in terms of getting that message there that I think that that's through. So I think the younger generation, do you beg to differ? No, uh, not at all. And I've read about the Robinson family uh, story and it was, it was tragic. But about four or five months ago, Progressive Rugby was sent a video that a, that a mum had taken at, I think it must have been an under-17s rugby tournament. And it wasn't fortunately her son's side, but she'd taken it through the bar window outside. And one of the opposition team, they'd let the boys have a couple of beers. And then their coach engaged with each of them a headbutting competition. So the boys put on a helmet 
and then just ran full into him and headbutted him repeatedly. And we could hear the mum saying, I can't believe what I'm seeing. So, yes, 99% of coaches are obviously clear, but there are still some maniacs out there for whom the message has not got through. So the three weeks were set in place in 1977. Then, 20 years ago, there was a group called Concussion in Sport Group, CISG, that was set up. They meet every number of years and... They've now had five meetings, the last of which was in Amsterdam in 2016. And they're a group of people who come together, have a conference for a couple of days and then produce their findings. So it's, it's expert analysis. Now, expert analysis to the listener might say, well, that's pretty good. But actually, when you look at science and you look at the strength of scientific findings, actually, expert advice is right at the bottom. Basically, those meetings far as I understand, were funded by the IOC, FIFA, the Equestrian Federation and the IRB, World Rugby. And I looked at a, a paper that came out last month that said the core group, it was obviously a big conference, but the core group was 36 people, of which 32 were employed by the sporting federations. And the leader of it, an Australian, has recently had to resign because he's been found guilty of plagiarism in his research. These are very, very, I'm sure, experienced people, but they're not independent. And they began to formulate this return-to-play protocols, which, as you know, went through the six stages, and you could come back and play the next Saturday. So World Rugby signed up to this and 10 years ago adopted it that you could come back. Now, the view of progressive rugby is is that everybody could say, well, there wasn't much science for three weeks, but that's what it was accepted for all those years. But we're still not, having gone through everything, we're still not sure how these experts came to the view that it was potentially possible to come back the next week. Also, we would like everything to be independent. Interestingly, all of that information that I've just given you has come out of this paper by one of those people who was actually one of the leading lights of this, who has advised World Rugby. And I don't know what's caused it, but he has just suddenly changed his view. And he is now of the view that there is not just an association, but there is a causation between repetitive trauma in in, in sport and CTE. Mm. And he made all of those points. I understand that World Rugby are now ploughing lots of money into various research projects, which is all very laudable. And they say we'll have the answers at whatever stage. But I just think now that the association is just so strong. And as we said, this group have come out last month and said they believe there is a causation as opposed to an association, that we've really just got to hit the safety button. So in closing... If you can't say there's been a cover-up, shall I say it seems like there has? Or can you say that the stuff was covered up? Or do you think it was out there because it didn't get filtered down to the clubs? So, uh, so something's happened along the way yeah. where there's information like that that's been given to the powers that be that haven't featured or even been given to my club doctor. I don't think there was an active cover-up. I just think the right people were looking at the right information at the right time and saying two and two makes four. Wow, such an important sum in hindsight. 
really, when you think about it. Uh, Bill, how much do the players have to play in this in terms of, again, something that I've spoken about? There were things in place, okay, albeit it didn't get a three-week stand-down period when I had head trauma and took a concussion, but there were tests in place. Now, I've spoken to players that are playing the game right now, high-profile, obviously not going to name them, that still try to cheat the system because they believe at this point in time that playing a game of rugby is still more important than what will happen potentially when they get to 40, 50, 60, which I think is madness. I told them that. I think it's crazy. But there were tests in place, the old flip the card, cognitive assessment tests, which we as players, I don't want to say everyone, but I'm telling you now, the majority of them would try and cheat in order for when the time came to do that test in season, you'd pass it. So how much of that is on the player, would you say? For, for the listener, I mean, what happens is is that pre-season, every player is supposed to go through baseline testing. And the baseline testing can then be used as a comparison if a player's had a, a head injury. And what you hear and what we hear is that the players, not all, but some will cheat to make their baseline scores worse so that when they're compared, they haven't gone down on their scoring because their baseline was uh, deliberately lowered. And that is a problem. I, I fully understand that, you know, when you're 25, you're never going to be 45. You think you're invincible at that age. When we've spoken to the Rugby Players Association and, you know, the international bodies, there's some really good people on that, both ex-players and doctors looking after them. And we understand that a professional rugby player's career is short. It can be brutally short. So should you take it out of the player's hands? I mean, one of the other problems that we get all the time is that we're calling for an extension of return to play. And, of course, World Rugby have gone some way in the last few months on that. We think it should be longer. Is that the longer the player has out, the more likely they and the coaching team will fib in order to come back. and But we don't think that's the basis of, of having protocols because you think the player's going to, going to deliberately lie about their symptoms. That's down to education. That's down to us as the doctors, isn't it? And, and the coaches to actually explain to the players that this is in their best interest. Mm. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I mean, I'd absolutely say to people listening, and there'll be some professional rugby players listening as well, is that that isn't the route going down because I always go back to the point what I knew then is very different to what I know now yeah you know and I don't think I would have done well it's a high it's great yes. <laughs> on anything you know and it's I would have changed many things I'm a very different person to what I was like at 24 and would have done anything you know and if I've gone back there would I've yeah mostly would have done everything the same but there's certainly things when 
I'm knocked out completely on the floor for 20 seconds, I would have taken myself off the pitch because of the reasons that we know now. And I know that it isn't necessarily them big knockout headline moment concussions where everyone's like, wow, the the causation of potentially, you know, early onset dementia. It's the constant, you know, it's the scrums, it's the mauling, it's the X number of contacts in a training session that go unnoticed away from the bright lights of the pitch. Yeah, I I mean, I've had to go through this myself. I mean, it's part of not being a professional, just growing as as a person, is it to be reflective and to learn from things. And, you know, I mean, the first elite sport I was involved with was was professional boxing. Mm. I mean, I was 26. Do you still like boxing now? Or not? Have you completely gone off it? I I don't watch it, no. Mm. I I mean, we were aware of the the risks at the time. In fact, the British Medical Association, even back in 1981, wanted to ban boxing. I was worried that boxing would go underground. I thought that boxers needed the best care possible and and wanted to try and contribute to that. But I've had to come to the view that actually as exciting as, as boxing is, it's not a it's not a sport that I could watch or get involved in medically. It's mental. UFC, I watch UFC, and there's a number of reasons why. I, I love the marketing side of things, how they storytell the background of some of the fighters. And my hands are sweaty when the big fights happen and they do the ring walk, and I can't wrap my head around how people can do it. I think you need to be, I'll say the word special, I think you need to be a very special human being to be able to do what these fighters do in front of the world. And there's a lot of comparisons in terms of the knockouts that you see in boxing, which is what people want. You bet on them. What round are they going to get knocked out in? You know, that's what all the TV channels in the media, that's what they show. That's what the newspapers show. They show the boxer on his back that is asleep. You know, whether it's the boxer that's gone out like that or it's Thomas Francis at Twickenham in, in February of, of this year, you know, I feel that a, a concussion is a concussion is a concussion. And I do feel that we should move away from CISG, this international group that I've talked about, and for reasons you understand. And I think this country needs to have an independent group. I, I feel strongly that this country needs a sports ombudsman or woman to oversee all of these things, whether it be safeguarding in gymnastics, which I was kind of knew quite a bit about through my patients, to the concussion issues. Somebody, somebody needs to overlook all of this and there needs to be an, an independent view. And it doesn't matter whether you get a hockey ball on the head or you get a, a knee playing rugby or you're boxing. A concussion is a concussion. I think there should be a commonality of what that means in terms of recovery and time away what i would say is is that um tanny gray thompson i've got enormous respect for i mean she was charged with producing a report in 2017 on welfare in 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 sport and she was of a very strong view that there needed to be a total divide between the medical departments those providing the welfare aspects in a sporting organization and the performance when the welfare and the performance side of a sporting organisation overlap and you get into the grey zone and that's when doctors get into trouble, mm. whether it be uh, UK cycling or anything. You know, We need to have a divide and th- those doctors making those decisions 
need to feel that they're not going to be put under any pressure. And I'm aware, obviously, that you know we have independent concussion consultants and in the game now, which is obviously a, a welcome step forward. But There's got to be total independence. Well, I've been that grey man mm. in the middle with coach and doctor. You know, I've felt the heat and I know which way it sways. Performance. Performance. Fa- fact. Fact. Yeah. You know, and James Robson was the very best. The very best as a player when I was there at saying, nah, he's not right. No, nope, he's not taking that injection. Mm. No, nope, he's not taking this. He's not doing that. It was James in 2009 on that Lions tour of South Africa, that second test at Pretoria, which I was lucky enough to be at, when seven of the Lions 22 finished up in hospital. Mm. James said, enough's enough. This has got to change. This yeah. has got to change. You know, And here we are 13 years later. On the boxing and the UFC, and I know the answer because I've done a bit of research to this, maybe you can give a longer form and contextualise it. People are like, well, what's the difference? You're a boxer. You know what you're getting into. They know what they signed up to, right? You look at that, you go into boxing, you know the likelihood is, you know, unless you're a Floyd Mayweather who can duck and dive. You know, I don't want to speak for Ricky Hatton, but he ended up taking a lot of damage along the way to get where he wanted to get to, and we know about his story after boxing, UFC, the same. But I think one thing people don't realise is the stand-down period. So you mentioned Thomas Francis, his situation. I mean, that's the one for me. When you're looking at that, you're like, how the hell, with everything that we know, could that still have happened and carried on and he was be allowed to play? My point is, in boxing, when there's a knockout or when, when there's a fight, there's an eight, nine-week stand-down period. That's it. You're done. Like that is independently controlled, and that is the difference of a contact sport and another contact sport in rugby, where there isn't an eight or nine week stand down period. No, as you say, and but boxing does have a very long stand stand down period. But of course, you know the boxers may be only fighting, even if they're not world champions, four or five times a year, whereas these guys in rugby have got to go out every Saturday. Has NFL changed anything? since they were in the headlines a few years ago and going through a similar process? The NFL has limited the amount of contact during training, during the season. I think, as far as I understand, it's very clearly regimented. And they, long before rugby, used the independent concussion spotters. I think also, when you go down to the kind of high school game, they do have a very well-organised system of concussion advisors who you know I'm part of the East Midlands Rugby Football Union so you know for instance the East Midlands would have a concussion advisor whose responsibility was was to cascade through the junior clubs to make sure that there was a concussion champion and to provide all the education. Is there a number of concussions that you think maybe it's going to be hard for you to give it personally because you are a professional but when you look at a player's history surely there's a limit to how many when is enough enough? And at some point, whether or not it be the club, whether or not it be the agent, the doctor, the mum or dad, at what point do you think at all will someone like a World Rugby or an independent say, you're done? The answer is, is there's not a finite number. I mean, obviously you wished it was zero. That's never going to happen. I do have a view that there are players that we all know who appear to have developed a glass chin in boxing parlance 
And you can just see it. And these are not necessarily the little guys, you know, but just some people. And, and this is why it's a multifactorial thing, that some people just have a predisposition. And once they've had one, they just seem to get more. And we all know who who they are. I mean, you know, Johnny Sexton, the most mercurial, brilliant player. I'll never forgive him for the, the way he led uh, Leinster to beat the Saints down at Cardiff and deny us of a second European Cup. But Johnny, this is all documented, I've never met him. I mean, he had three documented concussions in 100 days in early last last year. I think he had another one at the end of the year. At that same time, he rightfully got very upset with the French doctor who went into the press to say how many concussions he'd had while he was in France. And that was a confidentiality issue. And I'd, I'd certainly understand his concerns about that. O- obviously, there are concerns about certain players. And this is why, you know, not me, we, we need these centres that players can be referred to who can go through all of the testing we talked about earlier on to see where they are. And and what we should have is is a whole history. So, you, so it's not just that's your test today but that we can see your history of tests and we can see that there is just a change and of course as you appreciate jim we then get into restraint of trade i know the risks i've got a contract i want to carry on so so that's i think a very difficult issue as well well at that point should they be i don't know whether they do allowed to tick the box and say well it's on me then because again this comes back to Yes, we're talking about the progressive side of things. I know you don't want to go too much into the legalities of the guys, but that is headline at the minute amongst players of my generation, WhatsApp chats, discussions over a beer, over a coffee, deep discussions, sad discussions, telephone conversations. That is the headline in all this at the minute, as well as obviously the protection and the evolution and the progressive nature of people like yourself. How much is on the players with all this. And do you think it's different now then? So do you think with the players now, with the information they've got, I'm telling you now, there's enough information out there now for players to make a calculated decision. And what we're saying is, or I think what we kind of agree is, there wasn't that information, 5, 10, 15, obviously, before that as well, to make a calculated decision on whether or not you would have played in that grandstand decider or if you were me, the wooden spoon decider, or a European final with a broken rib, you know, or feeling hazy. It's a responsibility of the player and it's a responsibility of the doctor. It's our responsibility as doctors to give the player absolute full disclosure of the risk they're running. And then there's so many things. We're not talking about just concussion. We're talking about the player who's got a completely knackered knees, arthritic, you've got to sit down with them and have that discussion, if necessary, with their partner, wife, husband or or whatever as well. In medicine, obviously, we have to take informed consents. Sometimes that patient won't agree with you and we have to get them to sign a disclosure saying they've gone against the advice they've been given. I, I see it as a failure of myself as a doctor if having gone through the general risks and the specific risks to that player based on their history, if they decided, sorry, Doc, I'm still going to play on. Yeah, absolutely. We were talking off air around Ed Slater, a good friend of mine, just got back off the bike ride. He's up Mm -hmm. after you as well to do a podcast episode. And 
we were talking about motor neurons disease and the times actually right after slates diagnosis we're carrying on talking about other concussion instances and obviously gathering momentum off the back of the stuff that we've spoken about published a photo with ed actually as part of the story and someone tried to thought it was part and parcel of the stuff that we're talking about today in terms of brain trauma and MND and I've spoken to people in the MND fraternity who are doing the studies and amazing things and in, in lobbying for the great Doddy Weir and obviously Ed Slate and I had a couple of conversations with him is there anything from your side in terms of any information that potentially could be out there? As everybody knows this is a another medical condition that seems to come to the fore and, and appeared on the back pages of, of, the, of the newspapers. Motor neurone disease is not just one condition. There's several conditions within that group of MND. And there's a particular condition called amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, which seems to be what I understand many of, the, of these individuals um, have been diagnosed with. One of the problems is, is it is fortunately a very rare condition. So if, if you live in a town of 100,000 people, out of those 100,000, you'll get an average of about two people a year developing the condition. So it is very, very rare. Mm. And when you've got rare conditions, it's very difficult, therefore, to build up a, a picture quickly. What we do know is, as we've discussed before, the development of motor neurone disease appears to be a combination of environmental factors and genetic factors. It's about 25 genes have already been identified as having a potential association. About 10% of motor neurone disease is definitely familial. It runs in the families. And about 90% occur spontaneously. You are born with that genotype, that particular set of genes. Whether they come into play depends on environmental factors, probably. And amongst those environmental factors have been looked at people's involvement in sport. And they've looked at involvement not only just with head injuries, but also actually just many years of doing sport. There was a very good paper three years ago came out looking at all the literature to date. And in fact, they only named at that stage in that paper 32 sports people who'd come forward with motor neurone disease. That goes right back to Don Revy, the England and Leeds manager. Dolly Weir just appeared on that. Juice van der Vestesen, probably the best scrum half I've ever seen play, obviously died from the condition. And then, of course, since then, we've had Rob Burrow come forward from Rugby League and Ed and another couple of footballers. I looked on that list and there was four South African rugby players and, and now three British rugby players. So it is quite small. Most of the research has been done in football and to a less extent in American football. And there was a view that if you play those sports through being a child and into adult life, then your risk of developing motor neurone disease is about four to six times the general population. Really? But, of course, they're very small numbers. So I think there has been a very small look at rugby in New Zealand and it, it wasn't significant. I understand that Doddy Weir's charity is really pushing for research. What we can say at the moment is, is that from other contact sports, there is some evidence and there's clearly a need 
for more research. I'm sorry, that's a bit of a wishy-washy reply. But th- th- there's definitely a concern. Yeah, I think so. And I think we're not at the stage yet, are we, to put two and two together because no. people are messaging me privately. And again, I second-guess myself with publishing stuff that I've spoken about on the podcast, Simon Cohen, Julian White punching people mm. in the head. We're talking about concussion. I've just done a ride, a ride 350 miles for Ed Slater, who's been diagnosed with MND. People are trying to put things together and say, well, it's because he played rugby. And there's obviously a lot happening at the minute. And progressive rugby going forward, I've seen there's a kind of a want list going forward. There's a couple on there that are definitely stuff that I 100% agree with you. I think the amount of games at the elite level, I was over in Toulon when Evan Etzebeth was there. I keep talking about him mentioning the games that he would be keen to play in is the maximum is 25 because it's Ebenezer That's why I keep talking about him reverting back to that. But it's interesting that you came out with that number as a as a community as well. I think we all agree, and it's something, again, 18 months ago, I finished our conversation by saying there's too many games. Even before that, when I was playing, there's too many games because with the games comes training. That's one of them on there in terms of there needs to be a cap of what elite players put their bodies through week on week. What else is up there? What's at the top of that list do you think that needs to change tomorrow? All right, I'll come on to that. Richard just said a little bit about about the 25 games. I mean, we're not alone. Sam Warburton, this time last year, very much came out on the 25 games. And, and we really do need help from the unions, from World Rugby, looking at the world uh, fixture list at the at the elite end. You know, we had that situation on the third test, uh, England and Australia, where one of the players was going to breach his 30 games, wasn't he? He was going to play his 31. Now, I fully understand that he wants to play in that final test in Australia, but that should have been looked at four or five months previously. And you, you could guess, estimate where he was going to be come the summer, but he was pushed over. So what worries me is... Obviously, World Rugby says it's concerned about welfare, but then on the other side, it's looking at World Club Championships. More games. It's sanctioning out of the international window, uh, international games. So it's got to, as far as I'm concerned, help the players in this respect because the players are just being pulled in every direction. And it's got to say 25. Whether we finish up like cricket, you know, where the players hardly ever turn out for their counties... You know, they're centrally contracted and their country decides when and where they'll play. But so I I do feel 25 games is enough. I do feel very strongly on the other things. And we put this to World Rugby last year was that they've got to be very clear about the eight week rest. The players do need eight weeks rest during the year. And our proposal was there should be six weeks in between seasons and there should be two weeks which can be mobile during the season. We're at variance with World Rugby over the HIA. We have concerns because the HIA came out of Concussion in Sport Group. We're not very happy with them. So we we feel that the HIA is a bit of a blunt tool anyway. Clearly, if an HIA one can put Thomas Francis back on the pitch, it can put the Irish prop Lockman in the summer back on the pitch. It has a failure rate, which is concerning. We feel that if a player fails an HIA-1, which is the assessment during the game, and they've clearly had a brain injury, that's it. Now, the present ruling from 
World Rugby is if they pass their HIA2 within three hours after the match or on day two, the HIA3, then the result of the HIA1 doesn't count. They're not concussed. Our view is if that player is in your medical room during the match and they're clearly concussed and dazed and a bit disorientated, they're concussed and that's it. We want to push back to where it was pre-10 years ago to a minimum of three weeks, which is what it is in the community game. That's top of the list. Yes. I, I don't know whether the way that I'm reading the list is in order of how, right, this needs to happen. But it, Well, within, it, within our group, we all had views on what we thought was the top one, but that, that, that was the consensus that three weeks should be non-negotiable. Mm. We do feel strongly about, because as we know, a third of injuries occur during training and we're, you know, everybody's been worried about, you can speak to this more than I can, about the amount of beasting you get during training traditionally. I've got some horror stories. Yeah. One for a bear, I reckon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, and see, see, once again, World Rugby came out last year with guidelines on how much actual tackle practice a week, how much time on the tackle bags, how much time on scrummaging. They're reasonable, but it shouldn't be a guideline. It should be absolute because, once again, most coaches nowadays are very aware, but you've still got a few Neanderthals who will not adhere to it, and they've got to adhere to it with penalties. And we also feel about tactical substitutes, which has been an interesting debate. Um, I realise that if you reduce the number of tactical substitutes, you're going to reduce the number of caps at the international level people are going to have, their profiles. But as you know, Jim, separately, Ian McGeekin and um, Willie John and Gareth Edwards all came out on that side last year. I've seen a few of the old guard. The thing that is about that one that gets me is like fatigue. So if you're absolutely hanging, it's hot. And, you know, these desperate tackles that we're seeing that can cause a knee into the head and you're not as lucid. And there could be an argument, well, you need to be fitter. And therefore, you might be smaller because you can run more. All these things. That's the only one with the injury one where I, the injury substitution one, sorry, only a substitution if someone's injured as opposed to no substitution. Do you know what I mean? Like, as yes. in, that's where I think with that. But I can, I can see now because there's been a huge shift in the last few years, hasn't it? Before, even when I was playing, like, as in your worst players, without sounding harsh to myself, would be on the bench or your lesser players, you'd go all in. Whereas now, it's even we saw South Africa, South African front row, the bomb squad. Uh, exactly. I mean, uh, against New Zealand yeah. this weekend, yeah. we're obviously recording in August, but there's been a real shift, and these players that are coming on are absolute monsters. Yeah. Not all the teams, South Africa. Yeah. You know the All Blacks, these the, kind of big, powerful teams. The, the finishes, as, as Eddie Jones says. So, what do we know? We know that from the injury audits that injuries are more common in the second half than the first half. Some of the data I was looking at actually perhaps says 40 to 60, is more than 60 to 80. The intensity of the game, because you're all so fit, doesn't really drop off. And in fact, I was reading something about the those last two tests in 2017 of the Lions in New Zealand, where the intensity was highest in the last 20 minutes. We know, as you've said, that now international teams in particular pack their bench 6-2 so that you almost have a you know three quarters of your of your pack is changed world rugby have said that they're presently looking at this at the university of bath are looking at a number of games to see what that impact is the only evidence that i could find was from 2005 and it was a very brief mention 
um, one of the researchers was Simon Kemp, who's, who's head doctor for the RFU, and he published this, showing that when they looked at the, lo- the injuries in the last 20 minutes, since 2005, so they've known about this for 17 years, in 2005, what they found was, was that in the last 20 minutes of the game, those who'd played the entire game had a 31% higher injury risk than those who come on as substitutes. So it was just a almost a giveaway line in a research paper. But certainly the RFU doctors produced that data 17 years ago. I think it's great that World Rugby are now looking at this, but I think they should have been looking at it all the way through because everybody should tie together. And I feel quite strongly that if you've got a prop forward that's got to last 80 minutes rather than just come on for 30 minutes, you're going to slightly changes anatomy and physiology and everybody's tiring together yeah absolutely yeah well dr professor bill ribbons if we see my son jj the size of six foot six he could be six foot ten playing ballet we know the decision that we went in the hamilton household but i really enjoyed that that's a tough conversation for me to have it's a tough podcast for me to have having been on the other side it's emotionally charged there's not from your side but from players that we're in it and that are kind of in this, I'd say, worrying transition of our life. I'm 39, I'm going into my 40s now and, and hearing more and more stories. And at the start, I was like, oh, you know, here we go, what's going on here? Whereas now I'm looking at what you're doing at Progressive Rugby. I don't agree with all of it. We spoke about it earlier in terms of jumping on some of the stuff around the social media, but that's absolutely fine. That's you know, the people doing doing that side of things absolute prerogative but I think in champion for ex-players current players and parents who are thinking about putting their girls and boys into the game of rugby the game which we love so much Mm. I think you're doing great things and you're making noise people are taking note world rugby are taking note they're not talking to you anymore (laughs) at the minute but hopefully there's a there's a positive outcome here because we're on you know a knife edge we're at the edge of a cliff with rugby at the minute and something needed to happen and it feels that some things are happening but there's a number of things to work through you know it's interesting having Simon Cohen on here the other week and the salary cap's been cut yet World Rugby are talking about adding more games onto a calendar which is going to put more pressure on the players and obviously you know we're hearing now the RFU I was chatting to my mate at Gloucester adding in more protocols for concussion for the start of the season five new tests as well and I think progressive rugby have had a large part in pushing these things forward especially from where I consume mm. news and media so I just want to say well done thank you very much for coming on thank you very much for having me